0: Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Now, this is the trial of the week where I review a landmark trial that was published this month. Uh, and we love having right first or senior authors of these trials to join us, but rarely are we lucky enough to have the first author of a New England Journal of Medicine, landmark RCT, joining us. Published in August 2017, we're going to be reviewing the ATHOS-3 trial featuring angiotensin Two with the lead investigator, Dr. Ashish Khanna. So we set the scene, we're going to give some background and context, what was treatment like then, we go into details and review that trial of the week, and then close with where are we now, how does this affect our care of the critically ill. This one is so great, so let's get going. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. And our very, very special guest, uh, Dr. Ashish Khanna. Now, Dr. Khanna is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Atrium Health Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center and an associate professor and vice chair of research at the Wake Forest School of Medicine. Uh, reach out to him uh, on Twitter at Khanna Ashish CCM. Uh, Dr. Khanna, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about the landmark ATHOS 3 trial. How are you doing?
1: Thank you, Nick. I'm um, doing really well and, and excited to be here.
0: So uh, I'm so excited to talk with you. I kind of want to just get right into it. And let's kind of like set the scene. It's kind of that the mid-2010s. And prior to angiotensin two, when was the last new vasopressor we had? Like how novel was angiotensin II um, in the scheme of like our, our vasoactive agents? Yeah,
1: Nick, That that really sets the scene right so i mean prior to angiotensin 2 it had certainly been like almost two decades or more since the last um commercially used clinically used vasopressor was um was investigated and and brought through to to uh clinical use as we know it right Now, I will say in the same breath, though, that angiotensin-2 is not a new, new vasopressor or not a new, new discovery per se. Um, One of my favorite uh, slides around angiotensin-2 is the earliest papers around angiotensin-2 that that came up in 1961, to be precise, and, and that the discovery of the actual compound and its initial name, hypertensin, dates to... 1957, right? So, so it's not a new vasopressor per se, but yes, um, clinical use and phase three trials, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, there had not been anything else done for the last uh, two or three decades till um, angiotensin II came along
0: it's really, um, buying into the critical care mantra of what's old is new again. Right. And this is another example of, of it's, it's an older drug that we're going to repurpose and find kind of a new, a new, uh, indication for. So I love that 1961. I, I didn't know that now. Um, what's its mechanism of action? Like as a vasopressor, like how is it actually working to bring that pressure up?
1: Well the mechanism of action as a vasopressor is relatively simple um angiotensin 2 as as we know uh is primarily a vasoconstrictor it increases afterload although it does increase the release of aldosterone so it it does increase uh, uh, fluid retention as well so it does lead to some volume expansion as well as sort of a secondary mechanism now having <clears throat> having having said that there is some data that suggests that there is some synergism with vasopressin. Again, we we did not uh, see this, and we haven't done enough patients to, to actually work on this uh, hypothesis in, in the clinical space, but there is some animal data to suggest some synergism with vasopressin as well.
0: So the, I guess you call it the ATHOS-1, the, the pilot study, it was published in in the journal Critical Care in October 2014, registered as a clinical trial in July of twenty eleven. So keeping in mind that's when we got that first data. When did you start working on the athos three trial? And like give us some perspective as, as to, you know, how much work goes into on the front end into a trial like that. Because the other thing I noticed as I was going through is I didn't I don't see your name on the the initial athos one author author list. So you got it seems like you probably got involved somewhere in between.
1: Yes, yes. So, you know, even though some of the ATHOS-1 authors uh, went on to be ATHOS-3 authors as well, I wasn't uh, directly involved with the ATHOS pilot trial. The ATHOS pilot trial basically was a small pilot trial, I believe 20 patients in all 10 each, uh, yeah. ang2 versus uh, placebo, and saw some encouraging results with hemodynamic stability and norepinephrine sparing. Um, I got involved uh, when the ATHOS-3 trial was being developed And, um, and, you know, it takes a, I will tell you that it takes a village. Um, There was a trial steering committee and that went to the FDA and got a, um, got something called a special protocol assessment agreement finalized, which really meant that the FDA looked at the trial protocol and was in agreement with the, scientific rigor of the protocol itself and with the primary secondary outcomes and in, in a sense the fda says okay you know we we are in agreement with this and we can we can provide our stamp of approval which basically means that if the protocol actually shows and the trial shows what it's supposed to show uh, in terms of a primary outcome then the fda will not go back and, and question the the um, the you know the the outcome itself yep. and the trial methodology right so it so it definitely adds that uh, adds adds value but then it also means that there's a lot of work that needs to be done at the back end to construct a, a trial protocol and, and methodology that that are strong and and will answer all the necessary questions that the fDA wants us to answer so to just to give the the real life perspective i was coming out of uh, fellowship training, um, and uh, this trial was um, handed to me as the as PI at, at the Cleveland Clinic, which is where I was at that time, and uh, it was certainly a, a, a big deal because it was one of the first clinical trials that I was involved with, and um, and it appeared to be, a, you know, I was, I was involved with looking at the trial protocol initially, and I remember thinking, wow, you know, this is going to be challenging in several different ways. I will tell you um, that for the next um, two and a half years of my life, as we started enrolling patients, I, I basically, um, you know, just especially if you ask my spouse, I, I, I gave up my life to do to, to the trial uh, to ATHOS-3 um, and essentially spent all my time in the ICU, either working clinically or during my off hours working on this. And even during my on hours working on this because that was what I was working on. So typically I would work night shifts in the ICU and I would, you know, and then I would uh, meet with my research coordinator first thing in the morning and and she and I would would go over the entire list of patients that she had scanned from across the hospital. And then we would, uh, would, you know, jointly go consent patients and then I would go home, get a few hours of sleep. She would get everything ready. Um, then she would randomize and, and start enrollment. I would come back in the afternoon, help out uh, with the initial, you know, drug titration. It was tricky. It was difficult. And then and we would sort of go back and forth. We essentially gave up our the, a large chunk of our um, of our lives for the trial itself.
0: And so, I mean, it sounds like essentially you're, you're on call more or less one way or the other for that whole time, right? Whether, whether it's clinical or research, right?
1: Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I, I will say that um, it, it, I, I very soon realized how important this is going to be um, just from the perspective of the, the implications of the trial, new vasopressor, um, a novel mechanism uh, we had certainly not looked at the renin angiotensin system as something that we could explore in terms of the 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 vasopressive strengths of the of the system. We had obviously spent all of our uh, lives looking at the development of ACE inhibitors and ARBs, but we hadn't looked at using angiotensin commercially and clinically as a vasopressor. So I realize the implications are going to be huge. I I I also feel that the that the group doing the trial the the 82 icus across the world was a very very strong group of uh, pi's and and pi's that would uh, sort of motivate each other and and get the, get the trial done um, and because it wasn't an easy trial it's it's a trial that that basically enrolled patients when patients were at their sickest these patients were already on you know high doses of vasopressors and were hypotensive and were in organ system failure at the time of enrollment, as you well understand, this is a tricky time for families and and patients and and there there are many parallel conversations going on, and you have to be very careful that that you're not stepping on any um, ethical areas, you're not trying to enroll patients in trials where where ethically you know those patients should be offered. Um, you know, maybe a comfort care solution to their problem, right? And so it it becomes it, it becomes challenging in many different ways. It's also challenging because it's you you don't you, these patients are so unstable that, that it is totally possible that you enroll them in the trial, you start giving them the drug, and they further deteriorate and they have a, a mortality as an outcome, which which you know is, is is a big deal when you're doing a trial like this.
0: Well, I mean having all that pressure, it sounds like let's, let's fast forward to it's uh May, May 21st, 2017. How surreal was it seeing your name as a first author in a landmark critical care article published in the new England journal of medicine? Because coming out of fellowship, I can only imagine the imposter syndrome I would have in this trial and then seeing your, your, like your name on it. Like how cool was that? (laughs)
1: <laughs> it was probably the coolest thing that ever happened to me, <laughs> um, and and I and I say that in coolest thing in terms of the uh, scientific advancements yeah. and or academic achievements I've I've done in my life. Um, I I will also say that it didn't really sink in at that time. You know, I I remember that when we first uh, when we first got preliminary results from the trial, we met together, the trial steering committee and the writing committee. We met together. Um, and we sort of discussed the results and, and there was, there was a lot of senior people and very wise people on that trial steering committee who, who had previously authored in the new England journal and, and had, you know, and had experience with, with the new England journal. And, you know, they, they saw the results and they saw, and they said, you know, folks, you know, this is, this is good enough to get to the NEJM. And, and, you know, I was one of the more junior people in that group. And I said, look, if these uh, wise heads believe that this is NEJM worthy, then that let's, write it up. And I will tell you that for me, it was a process of, you know, of of education as well, because then I was trying to draft a manuscript for the New England Journal. But I, was, I will give a lot of credit to the senior authorship on, on the April 3 trial, uh, who actually held my hand and, and helped me write for the New England Journal, which I will tell you is, a, is an art in, in, in and of itself. Um, to, to be clear, concise, uh, and and not to overstate um, anything and especially when you write the discussion not to um, try and over extrapolate your your outcomes and that that's a that's an art that comes with, with a lot of uh, experience so the first part was r- putting the paper together which we did in record time I believe we put the paper together in a week everything included um, and then we yeah and then we because basically you know we I cleared out everything on my schedule and said that's the only thing I'm going to do and and you know some of the senior authorship and I'll take names you know Rinaldo Belomo specifically uh you know he you know really sat down with me and 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 we wrote together and he helped me write and then we <clears throat> submitted it and then we were in in what we in an expedited uh review process they had given us an expedited review which basically means that the journal says We'll get you peer review in, I believe, a week or two weeks, and and when they sent us back peer review, it was it was an exhaustive peer review, right? It was like I remember it was like six or seven pages of uh, reviewer comments, and um, and again, you know, we 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 got together, we we answered everything. Um, and um, and like you say, Nick, the the feeling was surreal when I got that uh, acceptance email saying we're, we're happy to accept this in the New England Journal. It didn't really hit me at that time. You know, I obviously I, I was excited. You know, I was I, uh, I I knew that this was this was this was huge, but it, it didn't really it didn't really sink in right away. I will tell you that it um, started sinking in more when I. When I saw uh, the, implica- the the downstream implications, the downstream implications being the FDA approval of the drug that followed soon enough, um, it also sank in more when I actually held the paper copy of the journal in my hand, which, you know, the yeah. print copy, it takes a little bit for the print copy to get to you. Um, and an interesting side story is during the process of the April 3 trial, I had, I had gone from having one um, um, toddler at home to my wife being pregnant with twins and then delivering twins um i so january 2017 is when the twins were born um right around that time so my house was uh, in a in a major pandemonium state my eldest was 3 years old the twins were a few months old you can well imagine what was going on um so clearly in my wife's eyes she was like whatever you're doing with this angiotensin and whatever it is, you know, uh, just just get done with it because I want you to focus, right? Like this, the, I mean, this house is on fire. I got children all over the place. You don't know how to handle this, and you're just busy with whatever you're doing. So she was happy, not because you know we had made it to the New England Journal. the 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 only thing she I, I she told me when I first published, I said, "Like, are we done with this now?" <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> and and then the, and and then not to prolong the story, but. The other part of it was I remember coming home with a paper copy of the journal, and my my um, uh, my in-laws were visiting from India, and you know e- even though they're they're actually both physicians, um, they you know had minimal knowledge of what the New England Journal was. So I remember handing my father-in-law a copy, and he said, "This is it, you know this is what you were so excited about. This looks like a very thin, flimsy, whatever uh, journal that looks like a, It's only for the New England area, so it's not even like a national journal. So <laughs>
0: it's like it's not, so deep... it's, yeah, it's not even a book. It's a magazine.
1: So I said, listen, forget it. I'm not going to waste my time trying to explain to you like uh, what this is, but uh, it's fairly important. And um, so, yeah, Nick, so there's different perceptions around, you know, how important this was, but, uh, but yeah, those are some of the interesting um, side stories I thought I should mention here.
0: I love that. That's, that's why, that's what we're here for. Um, so let's, let's talk about it. Eight, three angiotensin two for the treatment of vasodilatory shock. So, uh, published in August, 2017 in the new England journal of medicine. So I'll quickly go through some of the methods and then Dr. Connell come back, summarize some of those results, correct. Anything that I, that I may have said or, um, um, left out. So international multi-center prospective double-blind, randomized controlled trial. they doctor kind of mentioned all the centers. And if you're curious, pull up that supplementary appendix because it has all the different centers, all the investigators and uh, shout out um, Jason Leskoski and Alec Killian, of course, two pharmacist investigators on the Athos three. So got to shout them out. Um, so patients were enrolled from May 2015 through January 2017. And the primary outcome was map response at three hours. So what does map response mean? Right. It's a map increase of greater than or equal to 10 millimeters of mercury, or a subsequent increase of your MAP to greater than 75 um, milligrams of mercury. So uh, patients with vasodilatory shock were included, right? And the uh, patients had at least 25 millis per kilo of IV fluid resuscitation, and they required at least 0.2 mics per kilo per minute of norepinephrine or a dose equivalent, kind of using that classic equation that we know. Um, and they were on these pressors for at least six hours, right? So you know it wasn't going to be short-term, but less than 48 hours, right? We're not including the patients who were on pressors for five days. Um, and all patients had central access as well as an arterial line because there were specific criteria for defining um, vasodilatory shock as well. And uh, patients were randomized one-to-one to angiotensin-2 or a saline placebo. Now, once they were randomized and enrolled, once angiotensin-2 or your study drug was started, standard care vasopressors were only adjusted for safety reasons. So you were only titrating those study drugs from then on. So 344 patients were randomized, 321 patients ultimately receiving a study intervention. Uh, so Dr. Khan, what did I miss if anything, and then let us know what, what the results ultimately, what the ATHOS-3 trial ultimately found.
1: No, Nick, you've uh, described everything very elegantly, and you really haven't missed anything. Um, the, um, the 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 only other thing, um, you know, I, I'd like to add was that, the, you know, even though the in- enrollment criteria was to be at 0.2 mic- more than 0.2 micrograms per kilo per minute of norepinephrine equivalents, you, as you well understand, there were, a lot of patients who were way more than that uh, by the time they were enrolled, and and that that's important, and and you know I, I'll tell you why when I describe some of the post hoc analyses and and results. Uh, the the results of uh, this trial um, showed that uh, a, a large large proportion of our patients, about seventy percent of our patients met the primary efficacy endpoint. Seventy percent of patients who received angiotensin two. Met the primary efficacy endpoint of a MAP of seventy-five or ten more than baseline, compared to about twenty-three percent on on the side of a placebo. This was very, very uh, statistically uh, significant. Um, the secondary trial endpoints were um, specifically the cardiovascular SOFA score was in favor of um, angiotensin two. Now um, the there was a significant unloading of catecholamines, which means that uh, patients who received angiotensin II had a um, significantly less use of catecholamines compared to patients that, that used placebo. We also saw that the response to angiotensin-2 was, um, was very uh, robust and quick. In, in that you know if you if you look at the manuscript, you'll see that we've actually made these plots of blood pressure over time. And you can see that in the angiotensin II group that blood pressure gets up to a map of 70, 75, almost right away compared to the placebo group. And even in the placebo responders, that response is very, very slow. Um, there was importantly, um, we, we looked at a bunch of safety um, uh, endpoints as well. That's yep. part of the phase yep. three trial. And um, I will um, talk about specifically deep vein thrombosis here. Um, that that's been something that's been topic of uh, major discussion around uh, this trial. That was the one endpoint that uh, in the New England Journal, in the manuscript itself, um, we you know the way we've described it, there there was no uh, no difference in the two groups in terms of that. Uh, particular endpoint. However, when the uh, raw data was sent to the FDA, we included all sorts of thromboembolic phenomenon in the big basket of, you know, thrombotic or embolic events. So things like, you know, superficial thrombophobitis or, you know, anything that was falling in that large basket of thromboembolic phenomenon or thrombotic phenomenon was, was, given to the FDA and rightfully given to the FDA. So when, when the, an analysis was done, there was a, a definite separation there that patients who received angiotensin 2 had in, an increased risk of thrombotic or embolic phenomenon. Um, I think the data is data, and I, I'm not arguing against the data. I think the, you know uh, there, is, there, there is that signal. I, uh, I will also say that most of these clots were uh, catheter-associated clots. A lot of these clots were catheter-associated clots. Almost none of these clots led to clinically significant embolic events, which is reassuring. So um, my direct extrapolation of this in clinical practice has always been you know if i'm trying to use the drug in someone who's at a very high risk of thrombosis or embolic events then i would really have a deep discussion with the clinical group or the patient's family uh, if it comes to that to really you know look at the risk benefit and i would rather not versus you know i you know using a, a vasopressor like that on the other hand um, on the in the average in the average critically ill ICU patient who is who is also at an increased risk of thrombotic exactly um, yep. e- events, I, I I would go ahead and and, and use this um, and um, and um, I feel fairly safe in doing it. And you know now I've been using the drug for the last four years, uh, albeit in in cardiac surgery, but um, I haven't had any serious safety events to report in the real world here.
0: Well, I think that's you're, you're just kind of um, letting the listeners know some of those details behind it because I, I didn't know that stuff either. Um, and i want I want to dive into something you mentioned, which is the the norepinephrine like the vasopressor doses that they were requiring right that's a good point that you brought out the The requirement was for greater than or equal to point two, but when you look kind of at the end of table one there and you see that median vasopressor dose they were higher and they and then they even get in the distribution of greater than 0.5 right we're looking at you know over a quarter of patients getting those really high doses so go into a little bit about the about the baseline pressor use in this trial
1: yeah so the the most important point here is sort of what we've um, you know um, talked about in the last 5 years is vasopressors work well together but also work well when they are um, started in synergy and at relatively lower doses of e- each pressor. So what I mean there is, you know, this general tendency to to wait for failure of catecholamines before you start your second or, thir- or third pressor really puts patients at a disadvantage. And we've seen this. We've just published a post-hoc analysis where we looked at patients within the ETHOS 3 trial who were started and 2 at less than 0.25, um, of norepinephrine equivalents in micrograms per kilo per minute. Now, remember the inclusion criteria was 0.2, right? Yep. Versus those who were started at um, at sort of a, a higher dose, that which is more than 0.25, at least for this uh, post-hoc analysis. And we saw a separation in terms of a survival benefit there. So well, let me just go back and say the ETHOS 3 trial, and I didn't mention this uh, five minutes ago, the ETHOS 3 trial did not see a survival benefit of the group receiving angiotensin-2 against uh, placebo. The trial itself wasn't powered uh, for mortality as an outcome, Um, and I'll also say in the same breath that it wasn't a head-to-head trial of angiotensin-2 versus another vasopressor, it's a phase three FDA approval trial, um, and vasopressor trials have not demonstrated survival differences one way or the other. Now. In, in a subgroup where we started ENG2 early, which is less than 0.25, there was a survival benefit, um, so which clearly shows that you know one of the issues is we talk about all these wonder drugs, but then by the time we bring them along, uh, these relatively expensive agents are, are really at a disadvantage because patients are metabolically so unstable that no vasopressor is going to fix that, that situation.
0: So where, what do you think angiotensin's 2 place in therapy is? Because I kind of agree that if you wait for that refractory salvage, patients are on 0.5 or higher, we may have missed the window in a lot of cases.
1: Yeah, Nick, I I think uh, the exciting part of things has evolved with the, um, with the RAS dysfunction in in septic shock, or maybe even in in vasodilatory shock. So uh, what we do know, and I will talk about what we do know and what we don't know. So we know that ACE angiotensin converting enzyme sits in the pulmonary capillary endothelium as, as its major place, where it converts angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2. We do know that in situations where there's endothelial injury, such as severe septic shock or ARDS or prolonged cardiopulmonary bypass, there is ACE dysfunction, ACE dysfunction meaning less endogenous Ang 2 and consequent hypotension afterwards. Now we have also seen that when there is a dysfunction and low endogenous ang two that renin levels are are high because backstream, you know, if you don't have your end product, then the renin will will just in, in response to that start getting getting elevated, right? Um there's been multiple investigations uh, number one, coming from post hoc analysis from ATHOS-3 done by Ronaldo Belomo, and I was part of the, both of those, all, all of those studies, where we have seen that patients within the ATHOS-3 population who had renin more than the ATHOS-3 population median and were given exogenous ang 2 had a survival benefit compared to uh, the high renin patients who were given placebo. So clearly showing that there is an endogenous angi 2 deficiency, you replace that and you you fix the high renin uh, problem, then there is a survival benefit in a subset of patients, right? Um, furthermore, we also saw when we did further uh, layers of investigations there, we saw that in patients in the ethos-3 group who started with a high renin, and were given ang2 versus given placebo when we measured their renins again at hour 3 that was the hour that was the time of the primary efficacy endpoint patients who were given ang2 had a significant drop in their uh, renin levels patients with placebo had no change in their renin level whatsoever and then we saw we saw similar changes with ang1 ang2 ratios as well within the ATOS3 population now all of these were within atos 3 post-hoc analysis, recently um, a group in Belgium and then another group in, in Maryland um, came up with two separate analyses where they have shown that renin is a better predictor of um, organ perfusion and mortality compared to lactate in critically ill uh, hypotensive patients. And they've looked at the change in renin over time in, in these patients and been able to establish both Renin thresholds and change in renin that would predict mortality. I think all of that, all of this story pieces together really nicely that there is a phenotype of shock that we can identify that's high renin shock. That high renin shock is associated with really poor outcomes. Um, And there is a targeted biomarker here that responds to exogenous ANG2. You give the ANG2 that reverses this high levels of this biomarker and improves survivability. And that for me of all the post hoc work we've done around itos three has been the most compelling because that's also set me off on a, on a, a journey of further investigation. Like we are looking at other septic shock populations right now and trying to evaluate what exactly is going on with the different components of the, of the RAS pathway and, and not to, Miss the fact that i haven 't talked too much about the fact that there is something called the Ace two pathway as well, so ACE produces angiotensin two, but we do know that when there is aCE deficiency, there is a diversion to ace two and ace two produces angiotensin one to nine and angiotensin one to seven that are vasodilatory metabolites and and we know that that there is an imbalance of ace ace two that is also playing a role in this uh, complicated cascade here, which is uh, leading to poor outcomes. So that for me is, is the biggest sort of evolutionary change in our understanding of RAS mechanistics in in septic shock that has come about as a result of this trial.
0: And I have to shout out a, uh, a mutual, a mutual colleague, Patrick V. Rushevsky, because he's brought up that, that same concept and introduced it to listeners and and friends of the pod. So that's a kind of a reinforcement of something that, you know, hey, when smart people like you and Patrick say those things, I listen. And so it certainly does feel like that is um, that's kind of the way of of the future. Now, you've you've done a good job of highlighting some of the the research that's come from the ATHOS 3 study. What are what would you say are some of the the trials or or research that you're that's on the horizon with angiotensin two that you're looking out for? What are what are things that that uh, we should keep our eyes peeled for?
1: So I think we should definitely keep our eyes peeled for whether we'd be able to quickly get to a bedside point of care assay for renin that is nearly as rapid as lactate. One of the biggest things I've written about is sort of the, is renin the new lactate? And one of the reasons it's not the new lactate is because as of now, it takes about two weeks for me to get a return on my renin levels, right? So it's purely academic right now. If it was a bedside assay, it would really revolutionize uh, how we manage uh, hypotensive critically ill patients. Because if I saw a sky-high renin, renin that, and then I gave a little bit of ang2 and I saw it, go in the right direction. I saw hemodynamic response and and improvement in organ system function. I mean, that is compelling evidence to really be more precise with our choice of vasopressors. I feel we, we need to, I think in this era of precision medicine, we are still sort of stuck to the norepinephrine, vasopressin, and then the kitchen sink, right? Those are the three things we do for all of our patients. And we should not be doing that. We should be really individualizing care. So that is the one thing to look out for, the other thing to look out for is a much-needed head-to-head trial of um, ANG2 versus vasopressin or even ANG2 versus norepinephrine and a lot of development in the post-cardiac surgery cardiopulmonary bypass vasoplegia space. I know that uh, Rinaldo Belloma and colleagues have just uh, finished a feasibility trial of norepinephrine versus angiotensin II in, in the EU and Australia. And they're starting a norepinephrine versus ANG2 full randomized trial called the, the Porthos trial. We love our musketeers. Um and, and, and remember, if Ethos 3 was exciting, then, then Porthos is going to be really exciting because they, it's primary use of angiotensin-2 versus norepinephrine in postcardiopulmonary bypass vasoplegia. And one of their outcomes is a reduction in, in hospital length of stay, which is a really, really hard outcome here and a very significant outcome in, in the, in that patient population.
0: Uh, well, uh, Dr. Kana, thank you so much for coming on highlighting, highlighting this study. And then, you know, of course, just for all, all you do for us in, in the critical care world and especially the research world, um, uh, listeners reach out to him at Kana Ashish CCM. Um, but Dr. Kana, thanks so much.
1: Nick, was a pleasure. I, I loved it. I love talking about uh, the RAS and Angiotensin, so uh, uh, thank you so much for, for doing this for us. Wow.
0: What a what a huge thanks to uh Dr. Ashish Khanna for joining. What a what a great great episode today. Uh, reach out to him at Kana Ashish C C M um, on Twitter X. Let him know what you're thinking. And then of course reach out to me at pharmacy to dose, to dose, uh, or pharmacy to Dose at gmail.com. So we just finished the first month, right? It's the first month of trials of the week in August. Um, I like them. I seem to uh, it seems from some of the feedback that I'm getting that you all may like them as well. Let me know what you think. Feedback, right? Positive, constructive, what have you. Um, come to the website as well, PharmacyToDose.com, where you'll find um, a reference list with uh, a couple of the articles that we mentioned today and more. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy To Dose, the critical care podcast. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you calculate for over 500 easy to use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day try them today at qxmd.com/apps again that is qxmd.com/apps The podcast provides general information only and does not offer individualized medical or professional health care services, including pharmaceutical advice. The content and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the content and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal health care professional. The users and patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user patient should contact their physician, call 911, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the critical care PRN. ACP and the critical care period. Disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast as contents and materials.